Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Wow. That good. That really plays into the message then, man. You're so full of joy, and that's what we're talking about today. Once again, how you doing? Great, good, good. Hey, well, look, uh, before we jump into the reading, and uh, we're all going to be talking about uh, joy uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21, talking about the shepherds in the field and the great joy that they uh, experienced there. This is a story about them coming into, uh, into their encounter with the glory of God. And as we jump into this, <clears throat> what I'd like to ask you to do is to think right now, what's, what's your story? What's, what's your story? Uh, how is it that, uh, if you know Christ, how is it that you came to faith? What were, how, how is it that God began to draw your heart? What, what, what was the first time that you can remember uh, just uh, God uh, coming to you and maybe convicting you or maybe you encountered his presence and, and you weren't serving him, but then there was something about uh, the Spirit of God that began to just weigh on your heart. What, what were the circumstances? You know, and uh, for some people, that's a quite a dramatic kind of moment in time. For others, you know, maybe you grew up going to church and it wasn't quite that dramatic. However, if you're following Jesus and you're giving him and you've given him your life and you're uh, ordering your life after him, then there's, there's a moment, there's something that, that pulls you. In other words, you have a story. As part of your story, I want you to think about, like, right even right now, maybe what are some of the challenges that you're facing, other than COVID? I mean, everybody's facing COVID. But uh, what, is, what is your story? So as we, as we think about these things, um, I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we go through the message this morning. And uh, so let's read in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 21. If you're joining us online, so glad to have you with us. Let's everybody look at our Bible, look at your phone, and let's go ahead and read this uh, passage. It says this. Verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them in the glory of the Lord. Everybody say glory. glory. Well, this is a participation service. Everybody say glory. glory. Okay, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were all filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now everybody say, great joy. So I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And and this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before uh, he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we thank you, Lord God, for this particular passage. Father, as we look into this story, Lord God, this history, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, that you would renew in us once again our story of, of encountering your glory. That, Father God, that we would once again be captured by the awe of your goodness, amazed by your holiness, and, Father, just flat out flabbergasted by your grace. So, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, the Lord God, that your presence would be here with us today. Teach us, Holy Spirit, and allow the word to go deep into our hearts this morning as we celebrate you in Christ's name. Amen. So we're talking about joy this morning. Uh, so it occurs to me to be happy or to find joy is a basic human desire, is it not? The scripture says this. It says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, that particular scripture, I want you to notice, it says the joy of the Lord. It didn't say that the joy that I can manufacture. It's the joy of the Lord. God's joy is my strength. And that being the case, I want to put out right here at the front is this, is that uh, uh, God's joy is a state of being that goes way beyond just personal, cultural, or humanistic happiness. This kind of joy is a gladness that is a condition of supreme well-being. That's what it means. So for the believer, joy is a part of your inward spiritual condition. It is a part of who you are in Him. And this is fundamental to everything that we're going to read. And I believe it's a, it's, it's, it's a gospel truth and that joy is not something you're trying to attain. It's not a goal that you're going after. It's not something that you've got to work. As we all know, we are saved totally by grace. And when we place our faith in the uh, death and resurrection of the Savior, the Bible says that we are born again then of incorruptible seed and that we are, that the Spirit of God comes to live on the inside of us and we become partakers of the divine nature. And in that divine nature is love and joy and peace and all the other fruits of the Spirit, right? And so, it's important for us to understand that joy is just part of our inward spiritual condition. To live into this joy is for us then to fully root our identity and our acceptance in the completed work of Christ. It is part of the salvation package. The, the great joy in this story is not some one-time supernatural experience that is recorded here in these verses, but it's a transformative joy based on the incarnation, based on the glorious fact that still blows my mind after all these years that God would come down to man, that the Son of God would leave the glories of heaven in order to rescue you and I out of our deep desperation, our deep depravity, our deep sin, our deep rebellion, our, 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 our self-absorption, that the God of heaven would, would leave all the glories of the heaven and resign himself to be wrapped up in human flesh, that he would lay down his omnipotence to become limited by the flesh of man, the God-man, in order to save us. This is what our joy is all about, God demonstrating his love for us, that even while we're still sinners, that Christ died for us. We celebrate Christmas but really, every single day, we're celebrating and we can have joy because of Emmanuel, God with us. So to live into and out of this joy, uh, uh, we understand that joy then is not an experience. See, the world lives from the outside in. Brandon covered this last week in, in his message. He was talking about love. 
So he was encouraging us that as believers, what we do, we live from the inside out. Now, when we talk about living from the inside out, what we're not talking about is some kind of, you know, thing you do uh, maybe in yoga class or whatever where you're trying to go deep inside and find your chi or whatever, you know, that is. Look, I have nothing against yoga, um, but I'm trying to make a point. In other words, we're not talking about looking inside to our own human strength. We're talking about living by the Spirit of God and walking by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.16 says this, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify or fulfill the desires of the flesh. So when we live out of the Spirit, the one who lives out of the Spirit, it is the Spirit then who leads us and guides us into all the truth. He sets us free. This is, this is true regardless of whatever experiential thing we happen to be encountered. Because in the world, Joy is defined by outward experiences. Uh, joy is determined by what I have going on and is everything lining up favorable for me? Are my needs being met? Are my desires being fulfilled? And if they are, then I'll be happy about it. But if they're not, I'm going to be frustrated and I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to be frustrated about life. But in Jesus, our joy rests not in a circumstance or even a one-time spiritual experience, but the ongoing interplay that we have with the very Spirit of God. So Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Then when you live out of the Spirit, then when you live out of the Spirit of Christ on the inside of you, then you understand that no matter what you face in life, that Jesus Christ is still the way, the truth, and the life. And that when Christ, that He makes things new every morning. The scripture says that his mercies are, are new every morning. The, uh, the, the scripture declares that the fruit of the spirit is love. And out of that love, then we are able to walk in the fullness of joy. So it says, walk by the spirit. Another scripture says, set your mind on the, on the spirit. That means to, uh, uh, to focus. And he says, if you'll set your mind on the spirit, then you will not fulfill or gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not just talking about being able to overcome temptation, although it means that. But what that means is this. It means then that the outward world, the flesh, the natural realm does not have to dictate to you your experience in God. That there is a joy, there is a state of being that we enter into as believers that transcends the, uh, uh, the circumstances that we are experiencing. And look, 2020, as we all know, is not the year to be living from the outside in, right? Uh, allowing experiences to rule over our soul. This is, if there's a year not to do that, it's this year. Is that right? I mean, this has been, pardon my French, a hellacious year. If it could happen, it's happened. And hold on, we still got two years, I mean, excuse me, two weeks of 2020. It's going to seem like two years. But uh, anyway, we still got two weeks of 2020 to go. Look, uh, uh, the year started off, you know, innocent enough. But when we hit March, COVID happened, right? Immediately, we all go into social distancing, wearing masks, you know, can't gather. We had no church gatherings for, I forget how many months. We were into July, I think, before we started having services again. Why? All because of COVID. And then in the spring, you know, we had a lot of tension in the culture with the social justice issues, the police brutality, and, and these kinds of things, rightfully so. But it just added tension to the culture. And while that's going on, we still have what? 
COVID. Uh, then uh, the, the, the politics, man, politics has been an ongoing noisemaker, right, for the whole year. And then with all of the stuff around the election, and I don't know what you think about it, all I know is this, it's added more stress into our lives. And while that's going on, you know what's still going on? COVID. Uh, we had a record-breaking year for the number of hurricanes that hit, uh, uh, that hit the East Coast. And while the hurricanes are wrecking the coastline, you know what else is going on? Thank you. COVID. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we had all this stuff going on. So much stuff is going on. Celebrations were canceled. Graduations were canceled. I was scheduled to do a wedding for a friend in May. They punted it to September and then had to punt it to May of next year because of COVID. In other words, you know, COVID has been so, uh, 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 the pandemic has been uh, and this year has been full of so much stress and turmoil that 2020 has become shorthand for a reason for anything that gets messed up. So last Thursday, my beautiful wife, uh, she teaches English online to Chinese students. It's a 12-hour difference, so she has to get up at 4 in the morning. She's usually teaching from 4 till about 8 in, in, the, uh, uh, 8 in the morning, and then she'll teach some in the, in, in the evening. And so the, the other day she'd been teaching. I, I was up, and I was eating breakfast and having my coffee. She comes in, uh, comes up from her cave downstairs into the kitchen, sees me for the first time, you know, that day. And uh, does she come up, greet me with a kiss, give me a hug? I mean, come on now. When you see this first thing in the morning, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You grab it, you kiss it, you hug it, you love on it, and you thank God for it, right? That's why I need Jesus. You know, I need a little work on my humility. No, so this is what she tells me. She was shutting, uh, uh, she was on the computer. She had finished up her classes, and we have an Apple, uh, 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 an Apple computer, and she got the little spinning wheel. You ever see the little spinning, spinning wheel on your computer? It's called the circle of death. Anyway, so the computer shut down, and the next thing I know, I'm spending two hours. I'm not a tech guy. I'm spending two hours trying to reboot the, uh, reboot the computer, trying to download, you know, the software system. It doesn't work. I end up having to take it to a, a, an Apple authorized dealer. Some young guy looks at it, casually says to me, well, sounds like, you know, uh, could be an, you know, an infected hard drive. And I'm like, man, stupid COVID 2020, you know, that's, you know, on, on Thanksgiving, uh, Thanksgiving, the afternoon of Thanksgiving, my dog, uh, we went out to the bathroom, not trying to get, you know, gross with you or anything like that. But anyway, he starts bleeding. And so we have to take him to the emergency vet. You know why? Because it's 2020. That's why. If it's 2019, it doesn't happen. But it's 2020. So it does happen. Get home with the dog after several hours at the emergency vet. He's fine. Get home uh, 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 with the vet. While Angie is making Thanksgiving preparations in the evening, uh, uh, she yells out, the thing that every husband loves to hear their wife yell from the kitchen. She says, honey, I hear water dribbling underneath the sink. And so I go, I open up the cabinet, and the whole of the underside of the cabinet is soaked with water. It's leaking from the, uh, uh, it's leaking from the pipes. So I do what any handyman does. I go and I get me a wrench. I see the, uh, the corrosion on the coupler there. I take the wrench, I put it on there, and I give it a good twist. And when I do, the whole pipe just wrenches off. Now we got to eat Thanksgiving with paper plates, plastic knives, plastic cups. We know why? Because it's 2020 and COVID. It is, this is not the year, man, to be defining your joy by experiences. But this is what we do as Americans. Um, uh, the happiness industry is big business 
in America. See, we live in a culture that looks for experiences to define who we are and to determine how happy or how joyful we're going to be. Sociologist Will Davies says this. He says, happiness is all the rage right now. Not actually being happy, but offering to provide happiness or to measure it or to study it, legislate it, or even exploit it. In an article called Americans Are Spending a Fortune on Finding Happiness and Becoming Less Happy, author Ruth Whitman says this. Listen to this. She says, As a Brit living in the United States, the sheer back-breaking intensity of the American approach to finding happiness can feel somewhat alien. People in America spend more time, emotional energy, and money in the quest for contentment than any other nation on the earth. The systematic packaging and selling of happiness is an industry that's worth more than $10 billion annually. And experts say it's going to go to $12.5 billion by 2022. She says this. She concludes saying, in a culture that loves consumerism, happiness has become the ultimate consumer product. Happy, uh, uh, hopping on to the happiness wave is a woman named Natalie Kogan. She has a website called happier.com where she offers, for a price, all sorts of happy packages that are, quote, science-backed skills, practices, and rituals to help you better manage stress and find moments of joy. Kagan says this, that happiness is not a state of being. Well, she's contradicting me. She should know better. She says, happiness is not a state of being or a simple feeling. She says this, that happiness actually is a set of skills that we all can practice so that we can improve. So clearly, all of us in here need to practice our happy skills so we can be happy people. Um, for Americans, happiness is a pursuit. Spending all of this money on resources like Self-help books, meditation practices, wealth strategies, seminars, wilderness experiences, and promises to create a new self through new exercise routines, new diets with specialized foods and vitamins and fish oil and all these kinds of things. And if that doesn't work to create the perfect you, you can go get surgery to lift Tighten and enhance anything that is enhanceable. The bottom line is this, is that in our culture, happiness is a work. It is a goal. It is a skill to be cultivated. And if you're not happy, what's wrong with you? You just need to put in the work and just maintain the right attitude. That exhausts me thinking about that. Um, the thing about it is this. Studies show that for all the billions of dollars going in into pursuing happiness, Americans aren't very happy. Uh, Americans consistently rank as some of the least happy people in the developed world. Uh, one survey says that the day-to-day -day happiness of the American people ranks two places behind the citizens of Rwanda. The World Health Organization says this, that Americans are far and away the most anxious people on the planet with nearly a third of people in this country likely to suffer from anxiety disorder in their lifetime. Now, why is this? In another study, and this is phenomenal, it says this. Uh, in a study from, uh, of psychologists from UC Berkeley shows this, that the more intensely people value and pursue happiness as a distinct goal, the more likely they are to display symptoms of unhappiness, anxiety, loneliness, and depression. 
And for me, I say that comes right out of Romans chapter 8 that says this, that the more and more that we try in and of ourselves to do certain things and to do the things that we would do, it says the more and more we do the things that we don't want to do. And so uh, it is a, it is a, a vicious circle. Uh, in another article called The Rap on Happiness, uh, Amy Bloom lies out, uh, lines out five basic needs for happiness. Now, at least she's a little bit more pragmatic about her approach. She says that in order for anyone to be happy or to experience joy, they need these five things. One, to be in possession of the basics. In other words, have enough food, have shelter, roof over your head, good health, and safety. Secondly, get enough sleep. Sounds good. Have a relationship that matters to you. Take, fourthly, take compassionate care of yourself and also of other people, you know, show love to others. And then uh, uh, fifthly, have work that is interesting and engaging to you. The thing about that, and I think we could all agree, those are good things. If you can line up all five of those things at one time, awesome for you, right? But uh, the thing about all that, there's something that gets in the way of that from time to time, and it's called life. In 2020, it's called COVID because, you know, uh, whereas in we want to be part and, and have the basics of life, food, shelter, good health, and safety, well, that also assumes a certain level of financial ability. Um, it's always great to have relationships that, that matter to you, but, you know, if our happiness is being determined by the people and the friends or spouses or loved ones that we have around us, that's awesome. And nine times out of 10, they're going to bless your heart and bless your soul. But what happens when someone disappoints or worse yet, even betrays you? So does that mean that now you are eternally resigned to not having joy? What about having work uh, 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 that interests you or engages you? With the pandemic, there's been millions of people who've lost their jobs. Some people haven't been able to get a job. Some people are back at a job. It's not necessarily a job that loves, but it's a job that they do and they grind it out. Why? So they can have number one. So they can have the, the basics, right? The food and the shelter, but it's not purposeful. Does that mean that that person then is resigned, not being able to be happy because life happened, because 2020 happened, because COVID happened? Uh, Amy, goes, uh, Amy Bloom goes on in this article to admit, she says this, the real problem with happiness is this, happiness itself. Happiness, she says, is like beauty. Part of its glory lies in its transience. It is deep but often brief. She goes on to say, it seems that there is sort of a calamity that's built into the texture of life. That to hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, the petals fall, and the beloved dies, that it cannot last forever. Now that gets pretty fatalistic in a, in, a, in a heartbeat, but to that I say, it can't last forever or can it? Because the story that we're reading here in the story that you know, your own story of faith in Jesus is this, is that if joy is not defined as an experience, if it's not defined by the set of circumstances I find myself living in all lining up and that having to determine my happiness, but it's an encounter with the glorious Savior, then yes, joy can last forever. 
Joy is not necessarily marked by always smiling and backslapping somebody and feeling good about stuff. Joy is marked by the trust, the deep trust of coming that you, uh, uh, the deep trust that comes with knowing that Jesus Christ, that he is the king of creation, that he lived, this, that he lived in this world a, sin, uh, a, a sinless life, went to the cross, uh, sacrificed himself for our sins, rose on the third day, and in him we have been reconciled and that in, in him all things are new. When we understand that and we uh, uh, look at the world through the lens of all of that, like we are reminded each and every week, then we are able to have what Psalm 16 describes as fullness of joy. Fullness of joy in, uh, uh, in Psalm 1611, uh, uh, the psalmist writes this, in your presence, God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there is pleasures forevermore. What does this term fullness of joy uh, mean? The term fullness there means this. It actually means to turn away from one thing and get in front of another, to actually clear, clear some things up out of the way. So fullness, as we experience fullness, or we begin to experience as we turn away from some things and get in front of something else, it's an, it's an intentional thing. And the word joy, as we talked about earlier, literally means gladness. Gladness is defined as a condition of supreme well-being. So joy, once again, is a part of the divine nature as God breathes into us his spirit when we put faith in Christ. So fullness of joy is this. It's when we intentionally turn away from one thing to get in front of the presence of God. It says here, in, in, once again, in verse 11, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And where can you run and where can we hide in order to get away from God's presence? Nowhere. The presence of God goes with us everywhere. As a believer, the Spirit of God is on the inside of us. So therefore, we have access to fullness of joy because joy is a condition based on a relationship. But it's not our natural inclination to turn into it. Many times we're often like Adam and Eve. And when the presence of God is, is, is roaming around in our life, what we want to do is run and hide and, and get, by, get behind something. But joy, once again, is about turning towards God's face, turning towards and embracing his glory. And the result of that is a joyful encounter with the glory of God that can be so powerful that it transforms our very nature on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's the story that we find here with the shepherds. So in our passage, it says this, that in the same region, there were shepherds that were out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. These shepherds, man, these shepherds in the Old and the New Testament, it gives some honor to the profession of being a shepherd. But uh, in Christ's time, the, uh, being a shepherd wasn't that honored in the Jewish tradition. There's an oral tradition that says that in that era that regarded shepherds actually as being dishonest and prone to violate Jewish law. See, I want to talk about these shepherds for a minute because and as we talk about it, I want you to find yourself in their life because, you know, they're just folk doing their thing, all right? And uh, anyway, now, some of these shepherds were, were characters. Now, I'm not saying that you are, but uh, there's a group of shepherds that were called hireling shepherds. And these hirelings had a reputation, actually, of, you know, being on the fringe 
being a little bit unsavory in their business practices. They would lead their herds into uh, uh, other pastures of other people and allow their flocks to graze and use up somebody else's resources. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, they had such a reputation that the Pharisees would not, uh, the Pharisees would tell people, look, don't buy your wool, don't buy your milk, don't buy uh, uh, the sheep of these hireling shepherds because uh, you would have to assume that they're stolen and you could not use anything you got from them for, their, for religious purposes. Now, according to some research that I did, there was also another group of shepherds possibly also in that same area of Bethlehem. And these would be shepherds that had a little bit more of an, of an end with the, with the priestly caste because they actually would have been Levites who have been tasked to, uh, to raise sheep specifically for the sacrifices that would be performed uh, at the temple in Jerusalem. And they had a little bit of a higher status on the, uh, on the, on the social rung because what they were doing was important. Raising sheep that are without spot and without blemish for the sacrifices. I just imagine that that just set these shepherds up one against the other, one class against the other. These shepherds were out in the field. These were their responsibility. They're out in the field, which means that they're out there uh, uh, and they were out in the fields. They spent the majority of the year outside. These were rough Guys, anyway, they spent uh, uh, the majority of the year outside because they're having to move their flocks from place to place because of the dryness of the climate, trying to find suitable pastures to water and graze the flocks. Constantly, they were with the sheep and looking over the sheep and having to keep watching, guard and protect and keep the uh, sheep safe because the sheep were prone to wander off. Sheep, you see, aren't the brightest animals on the planet. They would wander off and, uh, and get themselves into trouble. They could break a leg or they would wander off and they would be uh, susceptible you know, to being attacked by a predator. So many ways, these shepherds are just like us, man. They're, they're working. They're hard working. They're in the world day in and day out, man. Man, they're, they're pulling, in this story, they're pulling the night shift. They, they're doing what needs to be done in order to have the, the five necessities of, of happiness, right? They're working hard to meet responsibilities and, and provide for their families. There was aspects, I'm sure, of their work that they really enjoyed. Maybe they had, you know, found, you know, great purpose in the fact that they were raising sheep. But I'm sure that there was a whole lot about the work that they did that they disliked because sheep are stinky and once again prone to getting in trouble. If, the, if you were the shepherd raising the sheep for sacrifice at the temple, you had an added stress in your life. Any of y'all have stressful jobs? And, you know, I'm sure the Pharisees were some overbearing, uh, 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 just micromanaging, egotistical type of bosses to have. Anybody ever work for somebody like that? I mean, so this is what the shepherds had. They're, they're, they're doing work under the radar. Maybe they don't get a whole lot of affirmation. They're certainly not getting a whole lot of respect. Uh, maybe they're getting passed over, you know, for raises and these kinds of things. Uh, their, their, their work can be mundane. Maybe they feel stuck in their work, you know. In other words, their circumstances are dictating to them, and maybe they're not very happy. And right in the middle of all of this, all of a sudden, we see in verse 9 that the angel of the Lord appears to them. So in the middle of their day in and in their day out, all of a sudden the angel of the Lord, it says, appears to them and that the glory of God shines all around them. And now 
everything is going to shift. And this is important to talk about because what is this glory? See, you know, when I was a kid and I read these stories or, you know, you see a, a, a Christmas special, you see these shepherds and this uh, light just beaming, you know, cutting through the, the midnight sky. And you see these shepherds, man, and they're all sort of, you know, pastor, you know, pastorly looking you know, gentlemen with clean white robes, all these kinds of things who happen to make their way over to the Christmas scene. And uh, what we miss in all of that is that the glory of God is not just light, that, uh, that dispels darkness, but there's a weightiness to this light. Because the word glory in the Old Testament actually means weight. And it means here the kingly majesty of God that belongs to him as supreme ruler. So when this glory shines all around uh, uh, the shepherds, they are experiencing the raw magnificence, excellence, preeminence, dignity, and grace of God. It is the manifestation of his sheer holiness. The weightiness of their character begins to weigh in on them. The unlimited power of who this God is, his love, his truth, his grace, and his mercy surrounds them, and it weighs on them, and the brightness is, 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 is powerful, and it's great, and it immediately puts them into fear. It says that uh, the light shone all around them and they were filled with great fear. That word great there is actually a Greek word is, is mega. It's mega fear. This is like intense fear. This is like fear like no other fear. What kind of fear are they, uh, are they having? This is a kind of fear that makes you want to run, that makes you want to flee, that makes you want to uh, uh, hide. What kind of uh, fear are they having? Man, they are having a spiritual fear and a physical fear, and a panic. And the reason why is this. They know they're before the glory of God. The glory of God, man, is weighing down on them. And they know this. They know the story of Moses. When Moses asked God to reveal his glory to them, God said this, no man can see my face, live in my glory, and live. And the glory of God is shining all around these shepherds. And this is a intense, powerful personal encounter like nothing they've ever experienced before. And their reaction naturally is to want to get out of that experience. The fear wants them to, to take flight and to leave. Why? Because God's righteousness is lighting up and exposing their deep depravity and, broken, and the brokenness of their hearts. At this moment, the shepherds are like Adam and Eve before God in the garden. They are naked, ashamed, and afraid. And in that very moment, for just a moment, the shepherds are feeling the unbearable weight of the vast eternal void that separates them from their holy and righteous God. And this glory, by God's grace, is allowing them to see the ugliness and the depravity of their self-serving nature. Their soul is growing faint on the inside of them as they sense the first tremors of God's impending judgment that hangs over their head. And then suddenly, the fact that they're living under an eternal death sentence becomes very tangible and very real. And as they scan the pasture, they see hundreds of sheep. They know there is no way we could ever sacrifice enough sheep to uh, reconcile what I have right now. See, this describes you and I. It describes our story. If we know Christ, if we know Jesus, 
All of us have come to that point in time. It's the basis of faith. I'll never forget the first time that, you know, that I really began to feel God begin to, 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 to pull on me when I realized that, that God was real, that the stories that I heard growing up, going to catechism as a, as a, as a, as a kid, and hating every minute of it, but um, going, going to catechism, and you read the stories, and it just seemed like to me just, you know, fairy tales, that God was just out there, I just sort of do my thing. God had no uh, way, in any way, shape, or form, was there any uh, uh, influence uh, uh, going to church had in my life. But then one day, um, one of my brothers is talking to me. He had, he had gone off to school. Somebody had preached the gospel to him. He had gotten saved. He'd been talking to me for a couple of years. He has me on the phone and he begins talking to me about Jesus and talking to me about the glory of God, talking about how God demonstrated his love for us, for our sins. And all of a sudden, things that I knew from being in catechism classes, all of a sudden, it's like the veil is ripped from the eyes. I don't want to sound like a cliche, but it's like my eyes, you know, finally actually understand in my, in my heart, I finally understand what it meant to be a sinner. It's not, it wasn't just some religious thing. It was something that became deeply personal because in that moment, in my parents' back bedroom, on the phone with my brother, I begin to sob as the weight of the glory of God convicts me of my selfishness. It convicts me of my sin because the raw holiness of God always exposes our raw sinfulness. His ultimate power lays bare our ultimate weakness. His benevolent mercy exposes the depth of my brokenness. And then his beautiful grace in that moment was revealing the abject filthiness, filthiness of me trying to justify myself and do my own thing. And when you encounter that, there's only two reactions you can have, man. Either you're going to fear and you're going to run out on it, or you turn into it. And all this is happening in a moment of time with these shepherds. And then the angel of the Lord says to them, fear not. He says to them in verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you, get this, good news of great joy. Look, don't run out. Don't run from God. Don't run from the glory of God. Don't, don't, don't turn away from his glory in his face. I, I know you're feeling, the, uh, you're, you're feeling the weight. The angels are saying, look, you have a great and desperate need, but the good news is this, is that there is a, 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 a great answer. I have good news of great joy. I have a joy that is going to trump your fear, that's going to trump the greatest thing that you ever needed. I have good news of great joy, and the good news of that great joy is this, that to you, born this day in the city of David, is a Savior. He's telling the, uh, the shepherds that, that God the Father is fulfilling his grand plan. And when the angel says this, the shepherds also uh, begin to understand that 4,000 years of, of history is, is, is coming into, uh, to bear right here in this moment. And in this moment, if you won't run out on it, what your experience is, is so intense, it's going to change the very core of who you are. Your very identity will be transformed. This news is so big, it will deliver you from your greatest fear and cause you to want to worship. It's an encounter with the living God that is so spiritually significant that it changes the very nature of you, that extracts you out of the darkness of death, and it translates you into light, into life. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. What do you think the shepherds are thinking at that moment? 
What? I mean, in one moment, they see who they are in front of God, that they are sinners deserving of God's judgment and wrath. They literally thought they were going to explode. They thought they were going to die. They're getting ready to have an Indiana Jones moment. Then the encounter turns with this good news that God has sent a savior, a deliverer. And it's not just any deliverer. It's Christ the Lord. It's a, it's, it's a savior who rescues them from their danger, preserves them from their destruction. Even more, he saves them from their sin, that all of their sin, all of their brokenness, all of their depravity of heart and mind, they're going to be delivered from. And not only that, that the judgment that is under you is getting ready to be wiped away because Christ the Lord, the Son of God himself, the Messiah, not a prophet, not, not just some prophet. God doesn't just sin, right? You know, God doesn't God didn't send an emissary, man. He, he doesn't he didn't send a, a, another king to rally the nation of Israel. He doesn't send a judge, but he sends the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord, the Creator, the Master of all, who is going to reconcile us and restore us so that we can become children of God. And the shepherds think, man, he will be our God and we will be his people. Can you imagine the power of the joy that they felt in that moment. You go in one moment from the scariest, most fearing uh, moment of your life, and then in a moment it shifts. Everything that you feared, your greatest fear is staring you in the face. The, your, your, uh, the, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen to an individual is staring them at the face, and then it shifts in, in, in just a second, and now they're experiencing the greatest deliverance that they could ever possibly experience. And it's not just an experience, but it's the translation, once again, from death unto life. It is a, not even a renovation of their nature. They become, new, they become reconciled. They become new, uh, uh, new beings. They are, they, 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 it is a, an encounter with a God who is able to make new, to reconcile and to restore. And what's their reaction? It's like, man, we got to go see this thing. So the bottom line is this, is that the gospel is the greatest news producing the greatest joy possible. And what I've tried to do, and it's hard, you know, is in this story for us to place ourselves in it. What's your story? What's the story of you in front of the first time Jesus revealed his glory? Whether it was a moment that defines your life and continues to be, more, obviously, you know, it's moments that continue to define. It's not like we just have one thing with Jesus and then we just go on with it. See, this is not religion. This is, this is faith. This is, this is life. See, what religion does is say, have an experience, throw some scriptures on it, and continue doing everything the way you want to do it. Determine your plan, amp up in your own strength, learn some happy skills, you know, pull a, you know, pull, pull some refrigerator, squirts, uh, refrigerator verse out of the Bible and things are going to be okay. Not so. What we're talking about here is faith. We're not talking about going from religious experience to religious experience. We're talking about the, the, the God of the universe who sent his son to die and arise from the dead, uh, 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 who took all of our sin, took all of our pain. Think about it. 
all of your sin, all of my sin, of all people, of all time, for all time, what stress are you encountering right now in your life? Brandon read us a statistic uh, earlier uh, uh, about the level of anxiety and depression, you know, in, 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 our, in our culture. And look, man, I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying, hey, you know what, you're born again. Put a smile on your face, you know, and you're going to have, everything's going to be sparkles and sprinkles, you know, from now and turning, and you're never going to have, you know, any difficult times. That's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus says, that the storm beats on everybody's house. The guy who has his house on the rock, the guy who has, has his house on the sand, the, storm, the storms come. In this world, Jesus said, we're going to have trials and tribulations. Jesus says, hey, you know, that he will provide for us. He knows what our needs are, right? He says he knows what our needs are even before we need, even need to ask him. But to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will provide the basics and the necessities of life. But we all know that life gets in the way. And when you experience death or when you experience pain or you experience frustration, and, you know, sometimes it's just the everyday grind that begins to suck the life on it. If we're only dependent on religion and we're dependent on experiences, then we're going to be like a wave, uh, like a wave of the sea. And, and we're going to be tossed backward and forth. But what we're talking about here is a relate. We're talking about uh, uh, the greatest news producing the greatest joy possible because it changes our very nature and how we are defined and how we approach and look at life. This change is, causes us to become children of God how can we possibly be shaken? So when I run into trials and I run into uh, 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 life events, when my 40-year-old my, my brother is laying in a hospital dying of a brain tumor, was I sad? Yes. Was I grief-stricken? Yes. Why? Because that's natural. But I don't know how to explain it. But all I know is this. What joy is, is knowing that I have a God that I can run to. A shelter that I'm able to take refuge in. And and that in that moment, Jesus is with me. He saw that. He, he, He took my suffering and he put it on a cross. And he promises to be with me through the suffering. But we've gone from death to life. We've gone out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We've gone, God's plan and purpose is playing out in your life. Even when we encounter negative circumstances like I just talked about, we have the scriptural promise that says that even what the enemy means for evil, God has the power to turn it into good. He says he'll take our mourning, he'll turn it into dancing. Sorrow may endure for an evening, but joy comes in the morning. Why? Because you got your happy skills out and you said your self-affirmation phrases? No, because we did like the shepherds who when they raced to Bethlehem, they saw the Christ child, they hit their knees and they began to worship. And maybe they began to sing, wonderful Jesus, beautiful Savior. Wonderful Jesus, beautiful Savior. Because the Bible says that when we are in his presence, we encounter a fullness of joy. This is not a worldly joy or happiness that's based on an experience. It's an encounter. Experiences change how you feel for the moment or for a season. An encounter with Jesus every day changes everything. 
It changes who you are now, and it changes who you are for eternity. Experiences are a moment in time, and they're fleeting. An encounter with Christ and his glory is constant and eternal because he promises to never leave or to forsake us. He fills us with the Spirit. He justifies us, transforms us, and he says, I make all things new. We live in joy because God is our God, and we are his people. In closing, I want to read to you the totality of Psalm chapter 16. And as I read it, I just want the word of God just to wash over you and let it strengthen all of our hearts. It says this. The psalmist writes, it says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. In other words, I turn into you. I run to you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot, and the lines for me have fallen into pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to hell or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore.